are going to be on the screen behind me. So either feel free to read along with me, uh, engage in that way, or if you enjoy to just listen and ingest that way, uh, you can close your eyes and just listen to God's Word. Mark 15, verses 1 through 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribe, scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? So how many, uh, so see how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked, and among the rebels in prison, whom they had committed murder in, uh, in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up, and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowds to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man that you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, what, uh, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowds, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This morning, as we pray, um, I'm going to ask that you pray for me. I've been under the weather, been in bed for the past three days, and I'm just praying for strength to get through today. But more importantly, I ask that you pray for yourselves, that you'd be listening to the Holy Spirit as he wants to challenge you through God's word. Let us pray. God, you are so good to us. You're not good only because you give us health or because you give us what we wish, or because we have um, the things that we have, but you are good to us because we have salvation that is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. And it's because of that faith we have in you, we are able to stand this morning, either metaphorically or physically for many of us in this room. We stand in honor and praise of you, and we beg you, Holy Spirit, to be speaking to us this morning as we read your word, that you would challenge us, that you would not allow us to leave this place unchanged by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Be with me in my mind and my words, and I just pray that the things that I say come out clearly. Um, if not, um, I hope that you use the gift of tongues to switch it in midair so that uh, everyone here hears what you want them to hear today. God, we love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Yes, I just prayed for the gift of tongues in a Baptist church. Ha, 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 ha.
my name is Jordan, and it's a joy of mine to be here with you. Um, I am just also, uh, like Jerry, just one of the small parts of the piece of the staff team here. Um, I uh, serve as associate pastor over youth ministry and family ministries. Uh, like I said a minute ago, I fought through Wednesday night, got through youth group um, successfully, and then went to bed that night and did not get up again until Saturday morning. And so, um, again, it's, it's a joy of mine to be here. I actually slept last night, so uh, that's good news for you um, because who knows what comes out of my mouth sometimes. So uh, I hope that I don't get let go quietly <laughs> this week because of something I've said. Um, our fearless leader, uh, lead pastor, Matt Garino, him and his family are suffering in Hawaii this week. And so I know, I know. Um, his, his father uh, invited his whole family to come up, so there was some extended family in Hawaii. But the joke's on Matt because this week, uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, was great weather here in the, in the Northwest, right? Uh, that competes with Hawaii uh, without the ocean that you can swim in. But... Um, I don't even know if Matt knows how to swim. Uh, I'm kidding. I don't know if he does or not. Uh, so we've been in this series of the book of Mark, and uh, it has been a fantastic series. I apologize for having a different slide than what we're used to seeing because I did not get that from Matt before he left out of town. But uh, only probably 1% of you even noticed that anyway until I just pointed it out. Um, but we have been in this series, and it has been great. And what I want to invite you to do is go ahead and open up your Bibles, if you don't have it open yet, to Mark, but Mark chapter 1. And let's just do a quick overview of where we have been and see what Mark has been saying to us. So we've entitled this series, this Mark series, um, the subtitle of it is Following the King Who Went to the Cross. Now, Mark is writing to a bunch of Gentiles. That's who this gospel was written to, not to a Jewish crowd, but to a Gentile crowd. That's why it's shorter than what you would see a, uh, the Matthew's gospel, because Matthew unpacks so much more than what a Jewish crowd would need to understand. But he's writing to a Gentile crowd. And not just that, he's proving to this Gentile crowd that this Jesus is a servant king. And that's going to be an important piece for us to understand as we move forward into Mark 15 today. So let's just look at Mark chapter 1 and look at verse 15. This is like the thesis statement, the thing that Mark is really highlighting throughout everything that we have seen. And so he says in, in Mark 1.15 that this is Jesus' words, that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus is coming onto the scene and Jesus is saying, now the kingdom of God is here. It is at hand. What your response is, your response is to first repent and then you must believe. Then as Mark continues to write, we see uh, the first half of this book. Um, so all the way to chapter 8. So I don't know if you are a visual person like I am or not, but, but hold in your hands uh, Mark chapter 1 through 8 and hold it up like this. This has uh, been a, the first half of the book where Mark has just been uh, unpacking Jesus' identity. He has been arguing that he is this king that God promised to send. But then something very fascinating happens in Mark chapter 8, verse 27, uh, like it does in the other synoptic gospels, in other words, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There is this Peter's confession that he is the Christ. This is the turning point. We've talked about this. This is the turning point in this entire book, and this is where good things start going to bad, 
where it has been extremely happy up front. Jesus's ministry has been a very positive thing. Jesus's language has been extremely positive as Mark through this book has wanted to prove his identity. But after we get to this turning point, the Peter's confession that he is the Christ, and then Jesus's language turns. He starts metaphorically heading towards the cross. He mentions three different times up until this point that he is going to die. He's prepping his disciples for what it means to deny themselves and follow him, saying that he He knows what is about to happen in his life. So that's where we have been. Today, we're going to be in Mark 15. Uh, As Jerry alluded to, this is one of the most amazing weeks in the biblical calendar, the Passion Week. Um, he, uh, Jerry Luta, um, Mark chapter 11, and, um, and that is where Jesus um, enters in Jerusalem on this Palm Sunday. So where we're at in Mark 15, today's sermon is going to be a, a little bit tricky because we are reading about the death of Christ on this Palm Sunday, but I don't want us to move forward too quickly. So let's just observe what this day is. This day represents the day that uh, in Mark 11, verse 9, we see Jesus riding on a donkey into Jerusalem, and a crowd has gathered around Jesus. Um, I would say mainly Jewish. Uh, I'm going to go on a limb to say that there were probably even Gentiles there who, um, who, who just labeled him as this king. They brought these palm branches, and they laid in front of him. Their vision of what was about to happen was huge in their mind. Do you remember back to the sermon that we talked about on uh, Mark chapter 11, verse 9, where the crowd is yelling, Hosanna, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Remember, Matt unpacked the idea of what Hosanna really stood for, what it really means. The crowd, by crying out, Hosanna, exclamation, exclamation point, they were screaming out to him, God, save us, we pray. That's what Hosanna means. God, save us. Us being in 2016, looking back at the cross, we see that so much differently than what an Israelite would have been screaming that day. They thought he was coming to rule and to reign and to wipe out Rome forever. God, save us from this oppression. God, bring your kingdom here. As Mark established um, from the very beginning of Mark chapter 1, your kingdom come. Is this the day? This is the day that we celebrate. That is what this Palm Sunday represents. And then we get to Good Friday, where all these dreams that the Jewish people saw and they hoped for were absolutely crushed as they watched this quote-unquote king die on a cross. And we get to feel the weight and the emotion of this experience this week. I'm excited to be able to walk with us as we are entering into today, driving towards Good Friday. The trick that that I have today is is as we unpack the death of Christ, I want to preach faithfully what the text of Mark 15 is going to preach, but I also don't want to cross that line quite yet emotionally because I want us to walk through the biblical emotions on Friday. 
feel the weight of that day so that once we get to Sunday, it gives us reason to celebrate. So as we unpack Mark 15, the main idea I want us to see today is the death of our king. Mark, as he writes this chapter, Mark is standing on this side of history. As he writes, Jesus has already been crucified, and Jesus has already been resurrected, and he's writing this to this Gentile crowd. But he is writing this, and he still leads us to entertain this question, is Jesus this king? We're going to spend the majority of our time looking through one, uh, verse 1 through 15, and we'll glance at 16 through 47, but we're going to save, hopefully, the majority of that until Friday, just to let you know where we are going today. So the first point I want us to see today is Mark is highlighting this question. Was he really the king of the Jews? Now, let's be honest. If we look at what we claim to be our faith from a different angle, what we say we believe is kind of silly, kind of ridiculous, right? That first and foremost, God, God became flesh and he came to earth. All right, not only did he come to earth, his mom was a virgin when he was born, Weird, okay. Um, and then we keep moving, and uh, many thought that he was a king, but this king actually died. But wait, he was resurrected from the dead, and all I have to do is believe in this Jesus, and I'm saved. Try telling that to your cube mate just like that, and they may look at you like, you're a little crazy. I mean, if we just look at our faith from a distance and we isolate it from the rest of the Scripture, we look at this and we're like, man, it is not obscene to ask this question. Was Jesus really this king? What we believe in without the Holy Spirit really revealing to us and saving us, it's ridiculous at its core. But it's part of such a grand story that in isolation we just miss. Mark's question of Jesus being the king was not a ridiculous question. If he is not the king, then all hope that Israel held on to was lost. There's nothing left, no hope left. But if he is this king, then this king rules and this king reigns. And not just rules and reigns, this king rules and reigns over everything. This means that Jesus isn't the king of over just the Jews. This is God being king through Jesus over the entire world. Do you get that? Either Jesus is king or Jesus is not king. What do we believe when we answer this question, was he king? Now the danger for us as we enter into a text like this is that many of us, including myself, at times we live in this happy medium of saying he was king but living like he was not king because we highlight things above ourselves this idea of Jesus being the king of the Jews here in Mark 15. This is the first time that it was mentioned in the book of Mark. 
But this idea of Jesus being king is not new. As we saw, Mark 1.15, the kingdom of God is at hand. If you flip your page over to Mark chapter 3, verse 22, you will see that, that the shadow of the cross starts appearing in Jesus' posture as he has a conversation with the scribes and the Pharisees, and they call him a son of Satan. They say that you do your powers by the works of the devil. That is how you're able to cast demons out of things. It's from that point on in this gospel, we start seeing that these guys are out to kill this king. The cross begins. In verse 411, the secrets of the kingdom have been given to the disciples. And it goes on and on and on as Jesus talks in parables over and over again. There are numerous times, there are 18 times total that the kingdom of God is mentioned here in the book of Mark. 16 of them are mentioned by Jesus. The two that aren't mentioned by Jesus, one shows up right there at Palm Sunday where they say, Hosanna, Hosanna, you are coming to let your kingdom reign. That is what is going on with one of them. And the second time that Jesus didn't speak was right here in Mark 15 where Joseph of Arimathea goes to take Jesus from the cross and he said his hopes were set on that the kingdom was coming. So every other time, this kingdom is central to the book of Mark. So assuming that Jesus is this king, what does Mark want us to see in Mark chapter 15? Jesus being this king is the whole point of this gospel. Let's relook at verses 1 through 5 together, if you have your Bible still open. So this is our second point I want us to see is the king was rejected by men. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribe and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Remember that phrase that they delivered him over to Pilate. We'll come back to that later. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again was asked, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? And Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. This past week, excuse me, sorry. This past week, um, I was reading some things, and there was an old Puritan pastor uh, who spent 25 years of his pastorate walking through the book of Mark. Aren't you glad that we're not taking 25 years? Um, someone that uh, in this article that I was reading made the connection without doing the mathematical statistics. Some of you are smarter than math than me, so don't prove me wrong. And I'm sick, so give me a little bit of grace. But, but it, would take, uh, it would take this Puritan pastor about eight, six to eight months to walk through the chapter of Luke, I'm sorry, Mark 15. And so uh, we are doing this in one day. And the reason I say that is there are so many good things to be able to highlight. There's so many things I would love to point to. Uh, we just don't have the time to unpack. But I want us to see this big picture of Jesus being the king. Jesus was rejected. This section that we just read, what I want us to see is that Jesus was rejected 
by men. The chief priests are the ones who brought him and bound him uh, and brought him to Pontius Pilate. And they asked, or Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? What this means, this has great significance because in this Roman Greco world, only Caesar was king. So to say that Jesus was king was not to just be blasphemy against the Holy Spirit or blasphemy against God. It was also a slap in the face to the Roman rule. The chief priests knew that they could get Jesus not by just saying that he speaks against our God, but by saying he speaks against Caesar. I think it's interesting that Pilate doesn't really bite on this. He repeats it several times, but that's not a drive. He's not like, yeah, get him. Put him on the cross as quick as you can. He kind of sees through a little bit of the fog of the chief priests, but it doesn't negate the fact that Jesus was delivered by the chief priest over to Pilate. He was rejected by men, not only by those men, as we saw later on in verse 6 through 15, that he was rejected by a crowd. Verse 11 through 13 reads, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd and to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with this man that you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. So this turned absolutely from the ruling authorities wanting Jesus dead to the crowd wanting Jesus dead. What we have to know about this crowd is who was in this crowd. So we have people who hated Jesus from the very beginning who were in this crowd. So it was easy for the chief priests to stir them up a little bit and get them going. But beyond those who hate Jesus, there are also people who um, were with him five days ago with the palm branches saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, oh God, we pray. They were the ones who were with Jesus and saw Jesus do these miracles. They bailed from him, and they are now standing in the crowd, and they are screaming at the top of their lungs, crucify him. Why? Because he is not the king that we thought he was five days ago, or he would not be in this position. So what do you do with this? Man, Jesus was rejected by the rulers, but also the very peers that he walked away with. And we see in verse 15 that Pilate had him go be scourged, 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 thank you. I would blame it on my sickness, but I just really don't know English either, so double whammy. Man, what does that mean? I don't know if your Bible has footnotes. If you could read on the bottom just real briefly about what that means. But maybe you've seen the passion of the Christ or you've seen these stories over and over again. But Pilate released him to be beaten, to be whipped. And not just whipped, but this whip, as my, bone, or as my Bible describes in the footnotes, with a whip that has both metal and bone with it. I was growing up taught that this was the cat of nine tails. And as we know through Scripture, that in this beating, 
he was beaten so bad that you couldn't even tell that he was a man anymore. And it was Pilate's hope that that would be good enough. Mark doesn't go into all these details, but yet the crowd still says, crucify him. Beating him is not enough. Kill this man. Put him to his end. Jesus, this king, was rejected by men. Not just that, but he was mocked for his kingship. This king was mocked by men. Look at verse 16 through 20. Read it with me. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace. That is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. If, if, what does that mean? A whole battalion is... If it's a full battalion, it says a whole battalion, that's up to 600 men are now taking Jesus. This is not two men in a back corner. This is 600 men. They call together the whole battalion, and they clothe him in a purple cloak, and they twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of his purple cloak, put on, uh, clo- uh, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to be crucified. They beaten and they mocked him. This king quietly set by as he was being charged by the chief priest and Pilate, did not say one word, which there's so much Old Testament prophecy connected to that idea that Jesus was going to be silent in those moments. And he was and he did. And he allowed them to just mock him. And the beatings continued. I can only imagine... Jesus in his 100% human form, as well as his 100% God form, but in his 100% human form, I only imagine the rejection that he felt in those moments. His peers just turned their backs on him. The chapter before, his best friend, Peter, denied him three times, and now the Roman guards mock him and continue to beat him to barely recognizable as a man. So, lastly, we see this phrase, King of the Jews, as we continue to the crucifixion story in this next section to where they, once they hung Jesus on the cross, they hung a sign above him with the charges against him that said, King of the Jews, which still led people to mock him even in his dying moments. Could this really be the king? Looking on this, is this the sight of a king? Or is there a bigger story at play here? Who delivered Jesus to be crucified? Look at 15.1. The chief priest delivered him over to Pilate. Look at verse 15. So Pilate, wishing to be satisfied, released him over, and, um, and he delivered him to be crucified. Chief priest 
Pilate delivered him over to be crucified. All these men had their hand in it. But what I want you to see, turn over to Acts chapter 2, and let's look at this grander, greater story that makes the gospel extremely beautiful. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. This is Peter's um, sermon after Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit fell. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man arrested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to his definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. And it continues and it continues. Who delivered Jesus up to be crucified? The Father delivered Jesus up to be crucified. It was just by the hands of the chief priests and Pontius Pilate in the crowd. They were just used by God to accomplish his greater purposes in all of the world. Why is this so important for us to know and for us to understand is that God, before the beginning of time, had written out history. These are called the decrees of God. God planned it all out before you and I were ever, our ancestors were ever on this earth. And he looked and he knew that Jesus was going to need to be crucified on the cross so that we could have redemption and have relationship with this Father. That is what he planned out from the beginning of time. Gosh, one of my favorite verses that I love referring back to and I read often to our students in opportunities when I have to preach is uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, um, and it, verses 3, oh, I can't find it, I think they got rid of it, nope, here it is, found it, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 6, I believe, Blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. It continues, in love, God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace in which he has blessed us in the capital B, beloved, that is, in the Son, Jesus Christ. Before the foundations of the world, we were chosen. If we are followers of Jesus, if we have surrendered our hearts to Jesus, it is by no accident, but it is by the leading of the Holy Spirit that you have done so. And that is God looking on you past your sin, past the junk that you find yourself in and saying, I redeem you in spite of it all because I love you. Man, this type of love goes way beyond any type of general love that God has for the world. This is a special love that he has for his adopted children. You and I are adopted by Christ if we are followers of Jesus. And what he is saying in those moments is that you are his, that you are adopted, and that you find favor in his sight. Even though you know your past, he knows why. He chose you. And we have to surrender to that. This is our identity, adopted. 
But this does not give us free reign to do what we will, to do what we please, to behave in any way that we want. Man, Pontius Pilate asked a great question to the crowd. His question in verse 12 was, as Pilate said to the crowd, what shall I do with this man that you call the king of the Jews? This is a question that he is asking to us. What do you do with this man you call the king of the Jews? Our sin. Our sin puts us in that crowd. And like it or not, we yell, crucify him. That is our heart's cry at our core. We become too comfortable in our everyday choices, and it puts us in this crowd. Man, when I start talking about sin, some of you in this room, some of us in this room know exactly what sins you struggle with. And part of you, either your physically your heads go down or your heart goes down because it's been stuff that's waited on you for years, if not decades, and you just can't fight through it. You almost feel hopeless today walking in this room with this sin that you struggle with. But there are others of us in this room that we, much like the Jews, look at everyone else who is sinful. When we have the log in our own eye, we look back and we say, man, look at all these sinful people around me. That maybe I struggle every now and then, but I mean, I, I just don't identify with all of this because our prides are bigger than anything else. Man, when we say, I am the king of my life, I get to do what I want, that puts us in the crowd. When I love the things that I lust after more than this king, I am in this crowd. When I'm so spiritually anemic, when I'm tired, when I'm depressed, and I celebrate just getting through the day and hoping that God's just not disappointed with me, that puts us in the crowd. When fear drives us to be moving forward, that puts us in the crowd because God did not give you a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-discipline. When we judge ourselves because we can just hear the voices around us that aren't really saying anything, but you think they are, that puts us in the crowd. Yes, this is active sin, and this is passive sin. This puts us in the place of the crowd. But this is where the gospel is so beautiful. This is where this story rings true. 1 John 1, 5 through 9 Read it with me on the screen. It says, this is the message that we heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him but we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus and his son cleanses us from all. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you ever grew up in the church or you went to VBS or you went to Sunday school, that is not a new verse for you. But let's read it in light of us being in the crowd and why the gospel is so important. 
being adopted, being loved beyond imagine, us yelling, crucify him. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 3. He, we look back at this, we know it's talking about Jesus. He was reject, sorry, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Is it sounding familiar? I know it does to me. Surely he was not, I'm sorry, sorry. Surely he was born our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgression. This is where the hope comes in. This is where we start leaving our guilt behind and we start moving forward in relationship with our father because we read, but he was wounded for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement that was brought that brought us peace, um, and with his stripes, we are healed. This is the gospel upon the crowd. This is the gospel upon you and me. We do not have the strength on our own to stand, to walk through this, and to stand holy and blameless in his sight, but God gave us everything that we needed to stand in his presence, and it all happened this week in biblical history that Jesus was on the cross for you and for me. Verse 6, and we like sheep have all gone astray. Amen. And we have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Praise Jesus, because I can't do it on my own. And I close one more with this sword drill. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin. For our sake... God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Why the sword drill? Why the jumping all over Scripture? Is because we have to see the grand narrative in this whole thing. Is Jesus our King? Absolutely He is, because God set it up from the very beginning to look just like this, and it is when we surrender our lives to this, this King, then we become adopted children. We have been predestined. We have been rescued. We have been sanctified. And in the idea of us being sanctified, that is us being imperfect through the Holy Spirit, walking us to fight sin and be more perfect than we were yesterday when we lean upon his Holy Spirit. Why? Why does he do this? Is it because we are the center of this story? Is your name written right in the middle of this book? Absolutely not. It is God's name written throughout all of it. Why? For, glory, for, the, for his glory and for his kingdom come, he saves and he rescues us. And my friends, brothers and sisters, that's what we tend to lose sight of. We make it about you and we make it about me when it is about the glory of God. So I close with this. As you are pondering what you've heard in Mark 15 and as some of you drive to your community life groups this week, 
three things I want you to do as we close in worship today and as you drive to these groups is I want you to ask yourself this question. How does your sin, not generically, but how does your sin specifically yell, crucify him? So this is the connection point I want us to make. How does your sin yell, crucify him? Then, how does his salvation reflect his glory in your life? Yes, absolutely. Do not forget that you are the beneficiary of this salvation, but it is his. He owns it, and he uses it for his glory. And the last thing is how in the world could God use this to make his name known in your world? You having the posture of being redeemed and sanctified and cleansed and being able to stand for his glory, though you are the one in the crowd yelling, crucify him. If Jesus is his king, which scripture proves that he is, that he rules and he reigns over everything. Let us pray. God, thank you for providing the king that we need. The sin that flashes before our eyes, the ways that we are so, uh, we so don't measure up, the way that the, the world yells at us and speaks to us and tries to form our identity, those are the things that tend to be the loudest voices. But with a still, small voice, God, you are whispering through my son, Jesus, through the death of him on the cross, I am calling you to myself to be saved and to be redeemed. And I pray, God, that you would do that in this very room. For those of us who have committed our lives and surrendered to you, I pray that the hearing of this gospel would drive us to repentance today. And if someone is hearing this for the very first time, I pray that you would make this story more beautiful than I could ever make it and that you would drive, drive someone to give their lives to you this morning. God, you are beautiful and you are great. And we love you more than anything else in this world no matter what our actions say. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.